I'm Tom Laddie, the director of the Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture, and I want to welcome you to Ream Library tonight. Uh, one of the goals of our center is to be a forum for interreligious and intercultural discussion. And through the Kraft Hyatt Fund for Jewish Christian Understanding, we've been able to do that to a great extent, uh, to send faculty to Jerusalem to study Holocaust and Yad Vashem, to send students to the Rothbergs International School at Hebrew University. There was a presentation, we heard some more about that today and talked about that tonight. And then uh, to bring in distinguished speakers on Judaism and on Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about some of those uh, talks, we invite you to visit our website, holycross.edu slash And also you can sign up to receive uh, emails about upcoming events if you go there. Tonight I'm really pleased to welcome Eugene Pagani, who will share his family's fascinating and tragic encounter with Jewish-Christian relations during and after the Holocaust. In 2000, Dr. Pagani published his story in a memoir entitled, My Brother's Image, Twin Brothers Separated at Faith After the Holocaust. The book was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Dr. Pagani's academic background includes both psychology and religious studies. And as we know, we learned tonight, he was a visiting student at Hebrew University some years ago. So if you are interested in Jerusalem study, he'd be one of the other good people to recommend it, a good person to ask. He's a practicing psychologist with a special interest in the healing of traumatic grief and loss. He's written and lectured over the past several years on subjects related to Jewish-Christian relations, the Holocaust, and anti-Semitism. His essays have appeared in the Jewish press, secular and religious journals, and his chapters in books and online. He lives in Newton, Massachusetts with his wife and two sons. Please welcome Jean Bergagne. Good evening. It's a pleasure, a privilege to be here. Tom had uh, originally asked me to come up with a, a title for tonight's talk other than the title of my book. So I came up with the title, From Brother to Other and Back. We, we don't have to look very far afield in, in today's world to find examples of the universal human tendency to locate the source and cause of one's fear and insecurity in the other, the not me, to project one's personal demons onto the foreigner, the alien, the black, the Jew, the Christian, and more recently, the Muslim. This kind of projection becomes most acute in stressful times, in times of war, calamity, social upheaval, and economic dislocation. Witness the terribly contentious atmosphere in our own government today, in the midst of our country's economic woes, the recent and ongoing discord over the Islamic Center at Ground Zero, and the emerging Islamophobia in our country. But as I say, this is a universal tendency, and it's, it's not new. For the longest time in European Christian history, the Jews were the quintessential other, the eternal wanderers, aliens and outsiders, and labeled as such by church fathers. The book that I have written in my brother's image is my family's personal story, which mirrors in uncanny ways the historical relationship between Jews and Christians from its very inception. As such, it is a story of an initially warm 
and loving relationship between twin brothers inhabiting the same Jewish family, but a relationship which results in separation, painful conflict, rupture, and only relatively recently, the beginning efforts at healing and reconciliation. This is a tale of Jewish identical twin brothers who are baptized as children in their native Hungary, become devout Catholics, and then, a quarter of a century later, experience unimaginably different fates during the Holocaust. One of them, my father, is persecuted as a Jew and decides to return to Judaism after the war. The other, my uncle, is ordained a Roman Catholic priest and finds shelter in a loving monastic community in Italy. I was motivated to write in my brother's image for very personal reasons. I do not consider myself a historian or a scholar of the Holocaust, and I did not undertake this project with a political or academic axe to grind. Nor did I primarily write this book to expose the theological or religious conflicts between Judaism and Christianity, although I did feel the need to probe the differences and clarify some of the confusing and painful tensions between the two faiths with which I grew up. But more than history, politics, or theology, I wrote this story as a personal and family memoir, a way to learn and remember how my own family members were once Jewish and then Catholic, and then some, how some of them became Jewish again and how those various twists and turns influenced our relationships and even our personalities. As one reviewer of my book has suggested, relationships die by big questions. I had to confine myself to the personal questions within my family, even as they may have shed light and put a human face on the larger ones. Most of all, I wrote in my brother's image, finally, to dispel silence. The silence that pervaded my childhood and much of my adulthood regarding my family's history, particularly my father's. It was more than having grown up in a home in which both parents had survived the Holocaust. There are always gaps and hesitations in such families to talk about things that are too painful and disruptive. The source of our silence came from a remote place, one more burdened by secret anguish and recrimination. That silence had its roots in what for most Jews is the unthinkable taboo of an entire family leaving Judaism to become Christian. No less disturbing, I had to imagine, than for a Christian to become a Jew. It was not unheard of in my grandparents' generation in Hungary before and after the First World War for Jews to assimilate or seek safety from persecution or, as in my grandfather's case, to find employment in the Hungarian civil service. So in order for my grandfather to work as a veterinarian 
in a Hungarian countryside village, and for his family to safely blend in with the surrounding Christian population, my grandparents decided to convert to Christianity. But I have come to believe that from the very start, my grandmother took her conversion much more seriously than just a social or economic necessity. She quickly became regular at Sunday Mass and confession and raised three devout children. Her twin sons were altar boys, I'm sure, by no small influence of their mother. And both of them had, at one time or another, considered entering the priesthood. Having myself been raised unambiguously Jewish by parents who, by that time, were fully committed to our ancestral faith, the idea of a Jew finding comfort in Christianity was frightening and forbidding to me for most of my life. That was the first silence I had to penetrate. Having been born as Jews and baptized at the age of six, immediately following World War I, my father, Nicholas, or Miklos in the book, and my uncle, George, or Tjuri, were inseparable as children and teenagers. Even after their first year of university, when my uncle pursued his calling into the priesthood, the twins remained close as brothers and as fellow Catholics. Then, with seemingly serendipitous events, their lives would diverge forever. On the surface of it, medical illness would take George to Italy, just as the war was breaking out in the fall of 1939. There, he would escape the same persecution my father and other members of our family would later suffer in Hungary. Having received the so-called water cure for kidney stones in a mountain town near Rome, George was uncertain how to spend the remainder of his eight-month leave that had been granted to him by his diocese back in Hungary. So he made his way to the monastic village of San Giovanni Rotundo in the hills of the Gargano Mountains to visit a mystical healer and seer, the Capuchin friar named Padre Pio. This was a man who bore the stigmata, the bloodied, perforated wounds of the crucified Christ on his hands, feet, and side, wounds from which the aroma of flowers would sometimes mysteriously emanate. Padre Pio was reputed to read people's souls and discern their destinies before and even after death. Countless instances of miraculous healings have been recorded and have contributed to Padre Pio's cause for canonization as a saint in the Catholic Church, an event that took place at the Vatican in June of 2002. It should not be difficult for any open-minded and open-hearted person to recognize that God's saints of all religious persuasions walk the earth. Whether in the guise of Jewish tzaddiks, enlightened Buddhists, and Hindu gurus, or as in this case, Christian seers and healers. To my understanding, to 
to many Catholics, Padre Pio was and remains even after his death what Jews might refer to as the foremost or Haggadol, or great light in many centuries. During the most significant meeting of my uncle's life, Padre Pio's sanctity instantly impressed him. The Padre quickly succeeded in convincing my uncle that he should remain with him in San Giovanni Rotundo. Though the war had not yet even begun at that time in Italy, I have learned that Padre Pio subtly and mysteriously warned George that if he did not remain with him, his life would be in danger. This was not only for George's being a Catholic priest, as many priests would eventually suffer persecution at the hands of the Nazis, but more likely, I believe, for being a priest who was born Jewish. My uncle was so deeply moved by his encounter with the saintly friar that he must have decided in that very instant to bind his fate to this mystical seer and his devoted monastic village in southern Italy. There, George would promptly become Padre Pio's correspondence secretary and regular assistant at Mass, sometimes even serving as the Padre's father confessor, as well as a lay priest in the community, bringing the sacraments of the church to the people of San Giovanni Rotundo. Years later, in America, George would speak very infrequently with our family about the life-saving sanctuary he received and what became the 17-year soul-deepening connection and friendship he had with Padre Pio. He once told me that simply being in the Holy Padre's daily presence was a source to him of constant spiritual consolation. As well, George would guardedly say that the people in San Giovanni during the war who knew of his Jewish origins would never have betrayed him. What good would it do us, they would ask, to betray such a good and earnest priest? You're not doing any harm, and besides, you're a blessing to us. At a time when Jews were being betrayed and persecuted in all other corners of Europe, including Italy, and even while I unambiguously embrace my own Jewish faith, I feel eternally grateful to Padre Pio and the people of San Giovanni Rotundo for the way in which they simply and concretely embodied the loving message of their Lord and Savior for sheltering my uncle and saving his life. But George never said any more than what little he did about his life in Italy, perhaps for fear of raising an even subtle comparison to what other members of our family suffered. His life in San Giovanni Rotundo provided him no basis for understanding or even believing what my father and mother suffered at the hands of the Nazis. Regrettably, he never asked. And that is precisely what would contribute to the deafening silence that subsequently ensued between the brothers and pervaded our family's life in America. As far as my uncle knew, the war years occurred in my family's life as if in another world. Although my father had been a practicing Catholic for nearly 25 years, 
Soon after World War II started, he was considered a Jew by the Hungarian state. In 1942, he was interned in a domestic labor battalion for so-called Christians of Jewish origin. There, in what to my father was the bitterly ironic entanglement between the Nazi allied state and Christianity. He was worked as a slave during the week, but permitted to attend mass on Sundays. Later, after Adolf Eichmann entered Budapest in March 1944 and engineered the lightning swift deportation of nearly a half million Jews from the Hungarian countryside in a matter of six weeks. The Jews of Budapest and those remaining in the labor battalions were making every effort to avoid their own deportation. Some elements of Christian Hungary made considerable efforts to protect the Jews. A small number, including a handful of priests and nuns, lay women and men, were heroic. But the wider church's public efforts to be helpful were solely on behalf of converts, and those efforts did not amount to much. Barely ever during the, the months that my mother was stuck in Budapest, while my father was still in the labor battalion, did the leadership of the church publicly and explicitly raise its voice in defense of the nation's Jews. For five months after Eichmann came to Hungary, there was total silence, such that Hungarian Catholics living abroad reportedly feared that the Cardinal Prince Primate, the leader of the Catholic Church in Hungary, had either been imprisoned or killed. Eventually, the papal nuncio, the Pope's representative in Budapest, distributed letters of Vatican protection to Jews and converted Jews, including my father, but to little avail. There were terrible betrayals by ordinary Hungarians and eventually murder in the streets by members of the notorious Arrow Cross militia. My Catholic uncle later described these people as barbarians who would have much to answer for in the world to come. His church would call them pagans, or at least subscribers to a pagan ideology. My mother, and especially my father, knew them more simply and directly as Christians, mostly baptized Catholics in a predominantly Catholic country, many of whose political leaders wrapped themselves in the banner of Christian love as they helped facilitate the deportation of the nation's Jews, and some of whose more zealous defenders of the faith blocked the entrances to churches and attacked Jews who tried to get in to receive what they innocently and desperately hoped might be life-saving baptisms. Certainly, there would have been dire consequences had churchmen acted more boldly in public defense of the Jews and as my father told me many years later, no one, neither Jews nor Christians, can be expected to willingly submit to martyrdom. But since that time, my father never stopped believing in the moral bankruptcy of the church to which he had been devoted for so many years, and a deeper silence still. 
My father and mother were married in war-torn Budapest in April 1944. They spent their wedding night in the basement bomb shelter of my mother's apartment house under continual Allied bombing. Months later, in December of that same year, my mother and father were deported separately to Bergen-Belsen. On my father's nearly 12-mile trek from the train station to the concentration camp, German civilians lining the frigid, wintry road hurled stones at him and his group of fellow deportees and angrily accused them of being Christ killers. My father later described this event as the death blow to his life as a Christian. While in Bergen-Belsen, my mother reaffirmed her Jewish faith, having months earlier in Budapest undergone an expedient baptism herself, like so many other thousands of doomed Jews in the city in an effort to save her life. Nevertheless, in the camp, my mother promised God and herself that she would one day raise Jewish children who would know what happened to her and to her fellow Hungarian Jews. She kept that promise. My father also regained his faith in the camp. If not his Christian or Jewish religious faith, then at least his faith in the goodness and dignity of the Jewish people with whom he had been deported. Once in more recent years, choking back tears, he told me of his having witnessed and participated in a Passover Seder in the concentration camp, an event that reconnected him to his Jewish origins and gave him an entirely new understanding of the meaning of suffering and liberation than what he had been taught as a young Catholic. Right around that same time, my uncle served Easter High Mass for Padre Pio in the relatively tranquil friary in the hills of the Gargano along the Adriatic Sea, still clinging, I'm certain, to the hope embodied in his risen Lord's redemptive passion. My father never spoke of the Seder with his own family until more recently, much less could he have imagined mentioning it to his Christian brother. After the war, my father renounced Christianity forever and was determined to follow my mother's lead to raise Jewish children. My uncle was stunningly disappointed. How could my father, my uncle thought, have given up the faith by which their mother had lovingly raised them? Nor could George bear to hear my father's understated and implied accusations of the passivity, indifference, and complicity of their fellow Christians in Hungary and Germany. But George's apparent indifference to my parents' suffering felt to my father like an equal betrayal. My uncle's enduring belief in what he once referred to as my father's apostasy, and in turn, my father's disappointment in his brother's apparent dismissal of his family's suffering as Jews, succeeded in fully hollowing out the chasm between them. That gaping silence that began after the brothers were reunited in the United States in 1956 
following nearly a 20-year separation, pervaded my family's life for virtually four decades, sowing confusion, uncertainty, and at times, hostility and bitterness. Nevertheless, my father and uncle reestablished a civil and loving fraternal relationship in neighboring communities of urban New Jersey. Our family lived in and around Newark, where my father worked for the better part of his career as a social worker for the County Welfare Board, and my uncle became pastor of a nearby Hungarian parish and was eventually elevated to papal prelate with the title Monsignor. We lived a few miles from my Uncle George and saw him regularly. He would come to our home on Sundays after Mass for a mid-afternoon dinner. My brother, sister, and I grew up with committed Jewish parents and an admittedly loving and caring Catholic uncle who looked eerily identical to our father but for his Roman collar. There was fun and novelty to it. Our childhood friends marveled at Jewish and Catholic mirror images of each other in the persons of our father and uncle. But to my recollection, there was also blunted animosity and recrimination, discernible even to my child's ear, in the gaps and silences of their interactions. In fact, my uncle and father never again spoke about two of the most important influences in their lives, religion for the one and the events of the Shoah for the other. That forbidding silence, I felt, crept into my own relationship with my father and even with myself. For when fathers cannot speak to their sons about their past, confusion and estrangement can follow until my father finally began to answer my questions. Ironically, that occurred only after I myself began to dispel my own legacy of powerful but unspoken sorrow that generations of my family had unwittingly passed on to me and that kept me from even being able to ask questions of my father. It was not only fear of upsetting him with my questions, it was fear of stirring up my own unresolved and unrecognized grief. It was a curiosity that I had learned of in my work as a psychologist that I was now experiencing firsthand. That children are more prone to carry the grief of their parents when the parents have been unable to mourn and speak about their losses. Thereby, sadness and sorrow are mysteriously transmitted, even through silence, from one generation to the next. I discovered that in our family, the most dense and pervasive silence was the unmourned death of my Jewish-born Catholic grandmother at Auschwitz a woman who reportedly clutched a crucifix as she entered the gas chamber and uttered prayers to her adopted savior. This was not, as in the case of the recently canonized Jewish-born nun, Edith Stein, a communal or institutional disagreement over whether my grandmother's Jewish origins or her Christian faith most informed the meaning of her death. 
My father and uncle shared a common and profoundly personal anguish over the manner in which she perished, something which could have united them but never did. They never spoke about their mother to each other or to us, my father's children. Much less could they find a common way to mourn her. When my father finally began to share his long withheld sorrow with me, I strangely recognized it as my own and offered to say Kaddish, the Jewish prayer of mourning for my grandmother in my father's stead, 50 years after her terrible death, since no one ever had, and my formerly Catholic father had never learned how. Without denying or avoiding the fact that my grandmother lived and died a Christian, as Jews, we had to mourn her, if partly for her eternal rest, but admittedly, most of all, for our collective healing. I think my father greatly appreciated my prayers over those months and must have been comforted by them because I like to believe that after that, his phenomenal memory was liberated and he began to fill in huge gaps in his and his family's life in Europe. In large part, his responses to my questions, as well as the great wealth of his spontaneous stories, have helped to fill the pages of my book. The curious and painful irony of my family's story is that even such closely intertwined twin brothers could not accomplish within their personal relationship what their respective communities of faith were unable to achieve in their long history. To be sure, it might have been impossible for my uncle to balance any better than he actually did, being a good Catholic priest and a loving brother to a Jew who had renounced Christianity. For my father, his relationship to my uncle was important enough to maintain that he somehow managed to tolerate his brother's implicit avoidance of the Holocaust and disappointment in my father's abandonment of Christianity. As long as they sidestepped these issues, that is, as long as they avoided the elephant in the room, they got along surprisingly well. It was now over 10 years ago, but still several years after George's death in 1993, that Pope John Paul II knelt at Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Memorial, and at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, and offered conciliatory prayers, begging God's forgiveness for the actions of the church's sons and daughters who had brought such great suffering to the Jewish people. While many Jews, including myself at the time, felt that those prayers may have been imperfect and incomplete, had George been alive, I think the Pope's heartfelt gesture might have opened my uncle's heart to the reality of my parents' suffering as Jews during the Holocaust, as well as to the complicity of Christians in the events of the Shoah, even if not fully to the putative passivity and indifference of the Catholic Church itself. As well, the Pope's dramatic recognition of Judaism as Christianity's elder brother 
might also have greatly softened my uncle's profound disappointment in my father's return to Judaism. Since then, I've become personally better able to accept my uncle as a man who obediently clung to the tenets of his faith and the prevailing attitudes of his church as they were defined during the formative years, his formative years as a priest. Just as my father felt compelled to accept the fate, destiny, and eventually the faith of his fellow Jews. But again, by themselves, my father and uncle, a simple Jewish husband, father, and grandfather, and a pious parish priest, could hardly begin to speak about what divided them when Catholics and Jews had hardly begun such a conversation. So here then, we have the solid foundation of healing between fraternal communities of faith that I may have hinted at in my title, For Brother to Other and Back. Without it, I'm not sure that I or many others before and after me would be here addressing an audience at Holy Cross on the subject of the Holocaust. But I'd like to offer an anecdote of a more personal healing between my father and uncle, one that injects perhaps a necessary note of mystery and grace into any hoped-for reconciliation. It occurs here in what can only be an epilogue to my story, just as it occurred only in the epilogue of my father's and uncle's lives together, several years, in fact, after my uncle had died. In the summer of 2001, as my father lay in a hospital bed in New Jersey, following spinal surgery in an effort to spare that 88-year-old man the ability to walk, he was in no small degree of delirium from strong painkillers. And yet, when we visited him, my father tearfully reported with utterly surprising clarity that his brother, 10 years dead, had come to visit him and brought with him a choir. And as they stood out in the hallway of his hospital room, my father heard them sing a Latin hymn from his and his brother's childhood, Maria Regina Mundi, Mary, Queen of the World. No, I choose not to believe that my uncle's intent was to bring his brother back to their adopted faith, but rather simply to remind him of the sweetness of their shared childhood together when their world was whole under the loving wing of their devoted Blessed Mother, whose death at Auschwitz rent their lives apart seemingly forever. And yet, whether you choose to believe the mystical and spiritual explanation for my father's experience or simply the psychological one, from that time forward, my father was reconciled to his twin brother and was entirely at peace with him when my father died nearly a year later. Thank you very much. <laughs>